The following podcast is brought to you by the Bridge Bible Church in Somerset, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the bridge for worship. I, uh, I appreciate that theme of freedom. You know, I'm reminded in Scripture that as it says we're to be slaves to Christ, that's actually the ultimate freedom. And I'm hoping this morning in the message that we kind of see as we work through the, the topic here this morning that freedom from the world facilitates freedom in Christ. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time here this morning to worship, to gather before you, to engage in the study of your word. We thank you for the word that you have given us. Open our ears here this morning so that we may hear, open our eyes so that we may see your truth. May we fix our eyes on you. And Lord, may we be changed, motivated, excited to pursue you. Bless our time here this morning, in Jesus' name. If you would, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're going to work through Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under the chairs. If you don't own one, please take the one that's there. You may have it for free. It's our gift to you. Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In this epistle to the Roman church, Paul was writing to the body of believers who were well-established and doctrinally sound. Scholars believe that the church in Rome was founded by those converted at Pentecost, but had yet to be recipients of Paul's apostolic teaching. Paul's intention in writing to them was to teach them rich, doctrinal, practical instruction in order to help facilitate their maturity in Christ, and aid in their detachment from the worldly thoughts and practices. It's worthy to note that this church was heavily influenced uh, and exposed to, and like, I'm sorry, the church was heavily exposed to and likely was being influenced by the pagan culture of the Roman Empire. As we proceed, we will see how this teaching from nearly 2,000 years ago is still relevant and doing the same for us, because we too are heavily exposed and influenced by our godless American culture. As we dissect this passage, I want us to first recognize that there are three main things that work together to draw our hearts away from God. The first one is worldly influence. As sinful human beings, our natural tendency is to conform to the world around us. In our culture and society today, we are obsessed with worldly things. From the time we were born, every experience, every person, everything that we are taught has profound influence over who we are how we think, how we act, and what we say. 
The world works relentlessly to conform us to its ways. The things of this world have meaningless and temporary purpose and ultimately aid in leading those who remain in their sin to death. However, for believers, the things of this world pose an even greater threat because they distract and lure us away from the right and committed relationship with God and with each other. The second thing is the desires of our heart. Every moment of every day, we are enticed and being taken captive by our heart's desires, whether that be an unfettered devotion to work, family, friends, extracurricular activities, sports, hobbies, education, politics, addictions, whatever it may be. We naturally gravitate toward these things, which unchecked cause us to be unknowingly and mindlessly controlled by them. Not every desire of the heart is sinful. However, even those desires can be a distraction from our commitment to the Lord. And the third thing is the power of sin or our sin nature. Apart from God, the pull of sin has absolute power over us. We naturally pursue our fleshly desires when we're around others, we tend to seek their approval, and, we result, and as a result, we act and talk and think like they do. When we are alone, we tend to do whatever we want. That which we perceive will contribute to a personal comfort and satisfaction. We seek out earthly pleasures and are foolishly deceived into thinking they will satisfy our soul. As a result, pursuing the desires of our flesh makes us enemies with God. Romans 8, 5 through 8 tells us, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. As Christians, we are called to be different than the world around us. We're called to be holy, to be set apart, to be vessels of honor, and to be useful for every good work. We are to imitate Christ. 2 Timothy 2.21 says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is, honorable, what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Ephesians 5.1 Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Followers of Jesus cannot serve the world and also serve God. But instead, we are to serve God only in our thoughts, in our actions, in our emotions, when we are alone, when we're around others, in the good and in the bad, in the ups and the downs, when we're tempted by the things of the world. When thinking about the weight of this, we must ask, how is this possible? How is it that we can do this? As we look at today's passage, we're going to take a close look at Paul's teaching to the believers in the Church of Rome to examine how the truths of the gospel are applied to our lives in order to be, for us to be transformed into the likeness of Christ and to avoid being conformed to the ways of this world. In verse 1 of chapter 12, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Here he is transitioning from the doctrinal teachings outlined throughout chapters 1 through 11 into the practical teachings for instructing the Christian believers in behavioral responsibility. This is, though, what Christians are to do as a result of Paul's teaching throughout the first 11 chapters. He begins by making this appeal to them. 
he is strongly urging and pleading with them to consider the implications of what he is about to write because it was of the utmost importance in relation to the Christian calling, which was their proper service to Christ. Paul's appeal was a deep, heartfelt desire for the sanctification of the believers, in this case, specifically the Roman church, to heed the instructions that they were being given. He knew the importance of the directive he was giving them, and he understood the benefits that they would be receiving in responding to his apostolic teachings for obedience. Paul goes on in using the phrase, by the mercies of God. Here he's extending his plea and reminding them of the compassion bestowed upon them through the sacrifice of Christ made on the cross for them. By divine grace, in God's mercy, he poured out his love, his grace, his righteousness, and the gift of faith. He is reminding them that because they have received these things from God, their duty is to walk in obedience to him. In obedience, which requires an all-in mentality and then produces sincere and relentless devotion and execution. And then, because of those mercies of God, they're to present their bodies as a living sacrifice. The command to present their bodies here carries an Old Testament sacrificial connotation and that the Old Testament law, God's people were required to offer ongoing sacrifices of animals as a means of temporary atonement for sins. The act of sacrificing animals in and of itself had no power to save the Israelites, but was for the purpose of cultivating and maintaining a right heart before God. So we should ask, what is a right heart? What does this mean? David writes in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. A broken and contrite heart is a humble heart, one that recognizes our sin and our hopelessness without Christ. Second Chronicles 7, 14 says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. When we are prideful, we don't think we need God. We do whatever we want. We go our own way. In pride, we are incapable of being humble, and therefore we cannot have a right heart. In the New Testament, through the New Covenant, Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. He alone was the worthy sacrifice for all of our sin. Now, because of his sacrifice, the need to sacrifice animals was no longer needed. Instead, we ourselves are to be dedicated to God as a living sacrifice. This is still a matter of the heart, a heart centered on repentance and obedience. Not for the purpose of earning Christ's favor, but instead for obedient sacrifice because of what Christ did for us on the cross. By giving ourselves up as a living sacrifice, we are giving back to God what is rightfully his. Our lives should be living proof of God's will and that we demonstrate the attributes of God working in us through how we act, how we think, how we speak. For the believer, being a living sacrifice is a testimony of endless gratitude for God's mercies. The act of being a living sacrifice is an ongoing process. Just as the Old Testament sacrifices were constantly required, our duty to be a living sacrifice is ongoing. It's constant. It's a daily responsibility. We cannot consider attending Sunday services occasionally or every Sunday 
or various events as a living sacrifice. Instead, being a living sacrifice demands a Christ-like mindset, attitude, and devotion in all areas of our life, all of the time. It becomes who we are. It becomes daily practice. So why must we do this? Paul goes on in saying that we are to be holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. It's written in Scripture multiple times to be holy, for God is holy. We are to be set apart for God. Therefore, those who are in Christ, the only acceptable means of worship is to offer ourselves up wholly and completely to God every day. We must yield to him as instruments of righteousness. Because of what Christ did for us, we owe to him all of who we are. When we truly consider the cost that Jesus paid for our sin, how can we not consider giving ourselves completely over to him? This is not a means to earn our salvation or to earn favor from God, but it is to be a lifelong act of love and gratitude for what he has done for us. As believers saved by grace, we owe our entire lives completely to God to be used by him however he chooses. From here, Paul transitions into telling us the what, which is to be a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, and pleasing to God, to the how. In verse 2, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. Conforming here refers to the assimilation of our surroundings. The word actually means a pattern, to be conformed to a pattern or into the likeness of. So essentially, as we begin to take on the characteristics of our environment, we assimilate to the pattern of the world. In conforming, we act, think, and speak like those around us. Tim Challey states that conformity is an ever-present danger. I recently found myself considering it and thought of two ways that we can be conformed to this world. We can actively pursue the world and worldliness, or we can simply be passive and allow the world a slow but steady eroding influence. This command not to be conformed goes deeper than just an outward action. It is a matter of the heart. Our actions are a direct reflection of our heart. The heart embodies our desires and emotions and is a product of the mind. Outwardly, we may play the part while deceiving or fooling others, but God knows the true intentions of our heart. If we are acting out our faith, we should be asking ourselves, are we then being a true reflection of Christ? If we're not, then we are minimizing the work that Christ did on the cross on our behalf. The intentions of the heart are a true measure of faith and obedience. Mark 7, 20 through 23 says, And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, Pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. These sinful attributes lie within the hearts of each and every one of us, waiting to be enticed by worldly influence and selfish desire. As Christians, as followers of Christ, we are not to be controlled by our former sinful worldly desires. We are a new creation in Christ. Therefore, we must act as such. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Colossians 3, 1 through 2 says, If you then have been raised in Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things here on this earth. We are to be mindful of God's ways, not pursuing or controlled by the ways of the world. How are we not to be controlled by our former lusts? We set our minds on the things that are above. How do we set our minds on the things that are above? We read, study, and apply the Word of God. The phrase, this world, translates to the age and refers to the beliefs and values of the world around us. Worldly beliefs and values are the product of Satan and his forces. The same word is used in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In their case, the God of this world, or the God of this age, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The ways of the world are constantly changing. There is no consistency. Matter of fact, the only thing that's consistent would be change. To conform to the world is to adapt to the world's constant change, where each person essentially moves and sways and flows with the change like a ship lost at sea going wherever the waves take them. God, however, is absolute. He is steadfast. He is perfect. His standards never change. He is a fixed foundation, and we should be seeking to fix ourselves firmly to that foundation. Paul then teaches that in order to avoid being conformed to the world, we are to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, your mind, our mind. The word transformed here is uh, translated into the English word metamorphosis, to change from one form into the, to another. A visual that is very relevant to us here would be the idea of a caterpillar being transformed into a butterfly. The caterpillar makes a cocoon, and in there, its body is broken down by enzymes which restructure the cells and reform that caterpillar into a new creation, the butterfly, which once transformed is completely different than its previous form. It was once ugly, crawled around on its belly, now it's beautiful and it flies everywhere. In the context of Paul's writing here, the wording is the same in Mark 9.2 and Matthew 17.2 when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. If you recall in Isaiah 53, Isaiah wrote that the Messiah had no form or majesty that we would look upon him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was of lowly stature and did not physically stand out around to the people around him. But in Matthew and Mark's gospel on the mountain, Christ became radiant, exceedingly white. His face shone like the sun. He was beautiful beyond human comprehension. But on that mountain, his glory was being revealed from the inside out. In that moment, he was transformed into a magnificent display of heavenly light. The transformation of this nature would not go unnoticed to anyone with an eyesight. The wording here also refers to the outward appearance or the actions our new inner nature as redeemed by Christ, as transformed by the power of God's Spirit, then reflects outwardly to those around us. We now start acting differently. We begin to act opposite of the world because of the power of God's Spirit working in and through us, so we are now capable of displaying the very characteristics of Christ himself. True transformation reveals to the world a difference in our character that is contradictory to the world norm. The righteousness of Christ is being displayed through us. In Romans 12, 9 through 21, Paul tells us what being transformed looks like. 
we'll read that quick here. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So now we'll transition into the why. Paul writes that by testing, so you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word testing here means to inspect or to scrutinize or to uh, fully examine. Here, uh, uh, Old Testament sacrificial language is used in that the animals had to be inspected or tested in order to be considered acceptable or adequate. A renewed mind is able to test all things in in order to determine what the will of God is, what is true, what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. Careful study and meditation of the scriptures changes our minds and our thinking, whereby the Spirit of God then empowers us to know and understand the will of God. These wor- the words good, acceptable, and perfect are again borrowed from the Old Testament sacrificial language, and they describe a life that is morally and spiritually spotless. Just as the Old, Te- Old Testament sacrifices to God had to be spotless and without blemish, a life that is holy is set apart for God. What makes us holy? The righteousness of Jesus through his sacrifice on the cross imputed or credited to us on his behalf. The saturation of God's truth in the believer overcomes the sinful defaults of the human mind. The saturation of God's truth in the believer becomes the sinf- overcomes the sinful default of the human mind. Our mind is where spiritual growth either flourishes or it decays. It's also where the spiritual battle is fought. In pursuing or aligning ourselves with this passage, we will wage war against our natural being in order to give victory to our spiritual being for God's glory. Our mind is either purified with the truth of God's word or it is corrupted by the influence of this world. The renewing of our mind will lead to the transformation that keeps us from conforming to the world. Conforming to the world comes naturally. Being transformed requires God's power and human effort. Godly transformation aligns our hearts and minds to God's will and God's purposes. These first two verses of Romans 12 are a call to commitment. Paul is commanding believers who have been blessed by God's mercies to give themselves holy and completely to the Lord. So as we reflect on this passage, we should ask ourselves, are we all in for the Lord? 
the Christian life is a call to be radically different than the world around us. Our bodies are in submission to our minds, and what we feed our minds affects what we think, what we say, and how we act. What thoughts, desires, or emotions control your actions? When you're in public, or at home, or in private? What are we watching on TV, on our computers, on our phones? What are we listening to? What are we reading? Who do we hang out with? How do we speak? Are we gossiping? Are we slandering? Or are we encouraging and building one another up? How is the world around us negatively shaping or corrupting who we are? When we think of these questions, if we're honest, there's so much in us that still carries the mark of having a worldly mindset. And, if, and we do continue in some aspects of worldly behavior. So what practical steps can we take to transform our minds so that we can avoid being conformed to the world? There's four things that I'd like us to consider when contemplating what it means to apply this passage. Four main practical applications that are effective when, when the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit is working within us. The first one is reading Scripture. We must saturate our minds with God's truth. That is the foundation. Reading Scripture establishes with, within us godly knowledge and wisdom. It reveals the character and attributes of God and exposes our hearts. It reveals the plan of God or the will of God. And it always points us to Christ. And reading Scripture ultimately shapes our worldview. It is the antithetic prescription of worldly thinking. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, we're told that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Alistair Begg says, The Spirit of God takes the Word of God in the child of God to make us increasingly like the Son of God. The second practical thing that we can do is prayer. Prayer establishes and maintains a relationship with God. Prayer enforces constant communication with God. Prayer makes us constantly aware of Him. And prayer centers our hearts and our minds on God's will. The third thing we should be doing is testing. In verse 2, so that we may discern the will of God. Is it good? Is it acceptable? Is it perfect? We could also reference Philippians 4.8. Is it true? Is it honorable? Is it just? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it commendable? Is there any excellence? Is it worthy of praise? We are to think about these things in our duty to test everything. And the fourth thing we can do is to actually live out our faith, applying the truth and walking in obedience to God's word. We can become a functioning part of a church body. We can engage in fellowship, community groups, 3D groups, ministries. We can pursue additional opportunities for learning through classes and studies. We can use our God-given spiritual gifts. And we can teach, we can lead, we can disciple, we can mentor. We can serve others in and out of the community, whether that be through evangelism, or hospitality, or using your finances. We can use our skills, we can apply our time, we can participate in various local events. Paul appeals to the Christians 
by invoking the reality of their standing in God's mercies before he even explains what is required of a Christian living under those mercies. Fulfilling the requirements of a Christian is the result of understanding what a Christian is in respect to God's mercies. Because of God's mercy through Christ in the power of his spirit, we can do good works. John MacArthur says that we are not who we are because of what we do, but instead we do because of who we are. For those whose faith in Jesus is in Jesus, they are children of God, empowered by his spirit to become the likeness of Christ for the purposes of God. If we are committed to God, then we spend time with him. Total submission to Jesus is to fall under his jurisdiction. He then becomes our king, our Lord, our shepherd who directs our path. If we are truly all in, then do we worship God in how we live? We may often consider worship to be the time we spend in church on Sunday mornings, but Paul in his letter to the Roman church is explaining to them that worship is all-inclusive and involves every aspect of our life. We worship in how we love others. We worship in how we serve others. When we do our jobs faithfully and with integrity, and how we act in public, how we act privately, how we interact with strangers and friends and families, we worship God by glorifying him in all that we do. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. As we approach the resurrection celebration this coming Easter and reflect on the sacrifices that Jesus made on our behalf, I'd like us to consider pondering some questions throughout the coming weeks. Does God have all of me? What areas of our lives are not honoring to God? How do we use our time? What controls our thoughts? What are we doing to deepen our understanding and strengthen our relationship with God? Are we reading and meditating on Scripture regularly? How's our prayer life? Are we talking about the things of God with others? Are we sharing what God is doing in our lives? Are we displaying the character of Jesus to those around us? Are we sharing the gospel with those who are lost and need a Savior? Are we loving everyone unconditionally? regardless of whatever differences we may have. How's our attitude toward other people? How's our attitude toward our situations in life? How's our attitude toward the church? Are we grumbling about the worship songs and the type of music we sing? I'm guilty. Are we grumbling about the teaching and the preaching, especially this morning? Are we grumbling about the elders and the church leadership? Are we grumbling about various ministries or the lack thereof? Are we grumbling about the wall colors and the decorations? Or are we seeking to see how we can be helping to shore up and build up these areas? Are we encouraging others, especially those who are struggling? Are we speaking the truth to one another in love? Are we seeking how we can be serving one another or how we can serve in various areas of ministry? Are we being loving and kind to others? Are we approachable or are we standoffish? I confess that I do wrestle with these things, especially as I was putting this list together. 
And as I was doing so, I was reminded of Revelation 3, 15 through 16, when Jesus said, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's a scary verse. As we ask ourselves these questions, let's honestly wrestle with them. May we seek to repent of our sinful worldly behavior and let the Spirit of God convict us, break down our pride, and fill us with Christ-like humility. And in that humility, let us come to him in prayer. Seek to hear from him through his word. And in that pursuit, may we also live out our faith to the fullest, being authentic representatives of Christ, rightly displaying his character for the sake of the church body and for those around us in our daily activities, and most importantly, doing all of this for his glory. May we as a body of believers in, God, in God's grace and power offer ourselves up to him as a living sacrifice daily, presenting ourselves holy and acceptable to him as our means of spiritual worship, and therefore not being conformed to the world around us because we're now being continually transformed by the renewal of our minds through his word, whereby then we will know the will of God that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Before I close, I want to wrap up with a short story and then the thought. For the last couple of years at work, we have been implementing a new ERP system. And for those who don't know what that is, it is an all-inclusive administrative and logistics system that kind of manages and runs your whole business. It's very complex. And the process of implementing this system is very difficult. Uh, we're two and a half years in, still not done. And in the process of implementing this system, we were finding out that it wasn't sufficient for our business. It was lacking things that we need, just didn't fit our business model, and it was very frustrating. So we bought what they call a module or an add-on that goes to it. And in the process of doing this add-on, in order to get it to work with your core system, you have to go through a user acceptance training. And in the user acceptance training, we were being trained by someone from another country who did not speak very good English. And so it was very difficult navigating through that. But every time he would ask a question, he would respond by saying, thank you for conforming. He was actually saying, thank you for confirming. So meeting after meeting after meeting, all we heard is, thank you for conforming. Thank you for conforming. Thank you for conforming. And internally, it kind of became a running joke because as we were dealing with this and we were pushing back on management, saying, hey, this isn't working, it's not fitting, they, they basically were saying, too bad, deal with it, we paid for it, you're stuck with it. So we would joke with each other, thank you for conforming, thank you for conforming. But this came to my mind because as I was putting this together, I looked at that passage and I was stuck on that word, do not be conformed. And in my mind, I could picture Satan saying, thank you for conforming. Thank you for conforming. Thank you for conforming. Every time we submit to the enticements of the world. And the thought I have was this, and I just thought of this last night, so I threw it in. But I remembered of Jesus when he was taken to the wilderness before he embarked on his earthly ministry. And every time Satan would tempt him, he was tempting him with the things of the world. And Jesus' response was, It is written. It is written. It is written. So what kind of Christians are we going to be? Are we going to be the type of Christians where Satan says, thank you for conforming? 
Or are we going to be the type that when we encounter the temptations of this world, we say, it is written. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you give us the opportunity to worship week after week after week, but even more so that you invite us into worship every day, every hour, and every minute. Lord, we are so grateful that you have provided the sacrifice of Christ on that cross and paid for our sins so that we can have a one-on-one personal relationship to you. We have access to you every minute of every day. As we reflect on this passage and this teaching, Lord, will you convict us? Will you move us? Will you drive us toward you and away from the world? And may we be transformed and not conformed. May you bless our time here this morning as we wrap up and finish out. And may you be glorified. Thank you for listening. The Bridge Bible Church stands to exalt the name of Jesus. We seek to be a community that gives glory to Christ above all things and welcomes all people to join us in worshiping him. If you don't have a church home, consider visiting ours. We are ordinary people who want to live life with authentic faith. For more information on how to get connected, deepen your faith, and experience what God has for you, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com.